Hello, my friends, and welcome to a Backtracker History podcast exclusive. Join me as I meander through the archives to find out more about a particular story that really caught my eye. In fact, I'd go as far to say that it would make a brilliant film, because in this case, fact is literally stranger than fiction. So let's get started. It's fair to say that this particular episode, a podcast exclusive, picks up from where the Covent Garden episode left, including only a few stories from its more darker side. And before I talk about the more heinous crimes, I'd like to introduce you to the Mohawks. When Covent Garden started going into decline in the 1700s, pickpockets were abundant and one of the chief reasons why sedan chairs were hired in the first place. The most notable pickpocket gangs to frequent Covent Garden were led by a woman known as either Jane Webb, Jenny Driver or Jenny Murphy. Regardless of what she was actually called, or if she was in fact just three separate women, she was notorious for being one of the expertest hands in town at picking pockets, so it says. There were also the more violet gangs, such as the infamous Mohawks of the early 18th century. Unlike typical bands of desperate muggers or highwaymen, the Mohawks were notable because they were not composed of poor or even working-class men. Rather, they were well-to-do young gentlemen who terrorised people for fun. Often they would meet up at a club or tavern, and when they were drunk enough, would unsheath their swords and order everyone to leave, often proceeding to toss waiters out of windows or even run tavern owners through with their swords. From there, the Mohawks would spill out into the streets and indiscriminately attack men, women and children alike, brutalising, mutilating and raping. Generally, they did not attack unless they could be assured of their superior numbers, because at the end of the day, these were cowards. Though a bounty was placed on them in 1712, they were not decisively ended so much as their activity just stopped. Word of the Week And for this particular show... I give you air hole, which in Victorian times was a small and often quite miserable public park, adapted from an old graveyard. They would pick up the gravestones and place them around the walls of the park in a sentry style. Needless to say, the bodies were never moved. In 1831, a crime happened in Covent Garden that shocked the nation. The abduction from the market and subsequent murder of a 14-year-old trinket seller. 
On the 5th of November, a group of men attempted to sell a body to the anatomy school at King's College. It was at the time a common practice, and one to which authorities often turned a blind eye. But today, it probably seems bizarre not to mention macabre. The rise of medical schools had created a demand for specimens, and the legal supply of executed criminals, which were the only bodies permitted to be used for the purpose, couldn't really keep pace. So when this body turned up and was being offered for 12 guineas, in the words of the King's College surgeon, it looked suspiciously fresh. It turned out that the body was that of Italian immigrant Carlo Ferrari, who lived by displaying white mice and selling trinkets. He had been enticed from his usual sale spot and taken to a hovel in Nova Scotia Gardens, Bethnal Green, where he was murdered for profit. The group, John Bishop, Thomas Williams and James May, were arrested at King's College and tried at the Old Bailey the following month. All were found guilty and sentenced to death, although in the event May's punishment was converted to transportation to modern-day Tasmania. Bishop and Williams also confessed to a string of additional crimes, whilst a Covent Gardener porter, Michael Shields, was allowed to remain at liberty, based on the testimony of his co-conspirators that he had only been involved in deliveries and not murders. This crime was turned into a drama called Carlo Ferrari, The Murder of the Italian Boy, and shown at the Britannia Theatre in October 1861. Today, Bishop, Williams and May are remembered as the London Burkers, in reference to the similar crimes of Burke and Hare in Scotland in 1828. Nova Scotia Gardens, where Carlo was murdered, disappeared a long time ago, although the site of the houses roughly equates to modern-day Ravenscroft Park of Columbia Road. The Birdcage pub, frequented by the gang, still stands within sight of this park. on the street. We'll be staying in London for this and in particular Bleeding Heart Yard in Holborn, which has two stories behind the name, one more likely than the other, which is probably an urban legend. The first is that it was named after an inn located here in the 16th century called the Bleeding Heart. The sign of the inn portrayed the heart of the Virgin Mary being pierced by five swords. The second, more romantic version says that on the night of the 26th of January, 1646, a gruesome murder took place here. The story goes that at the famous Hatton Ball, taking place nearby, a strange man with a hunched shoulder and a clawed hand strides in charms and dances with the Lady Hatton all night. The next morning her body was found torn limb from limb in the courtyard of what is now Bleeding Heart Yard. Her heart was apparently found lying on the cobbles, still pumping out blood. The tale goes that this strange man was in fact the devil. (laughs) 
for our last story about the darker side of Covent Garden, we go to the stage door of the Adelphi Theatre, where you will find a plaque to William Terrace. William Breezy Bill Terrace was born in 1847 and was one of the most popular actors of his day. On the 16th of December 1897, he was stabbed to death when he was 50 by a deranged fellow actor, Richard Archer Prince, aged 32, by that very private stage door, as he was going in for his performance in the drama Secret Service. William had just exited a cab with his friend Mr Graves and was looking for the keys to the stage door, when Richard Prince, wearing a black cloak, leapt out of a dark alley and struck William three times. William managed to get into the theatre and fell in the hallway on the staircase, where he died 30 minutes later. A witness said, I was standing near the stage door of the Adelphi Theatre in Maiden Lane, shortly before half past seven, and I observed a man who is familiar to the frequenters of that part. He wore a soft felt hat and a kind of long ulster with a cape to it. I remember seeing him at the Adelphi when they were playing in the ranks. Mr. Terrace came along and went to the private door of the theatre on his way to his dressing room to prepare for his role of Louis Dumont. He stopped in front of the door for an instant, doubtless to take his keys from his pocket. The man I have described who I noticed had a sort of wild look in his eyes, walked up to Mr. Terrace and quickly stabbed him with a knife. Mr. Terrace was heard to cry out, You have stabbed me! But before the assailant could be seized, he had aimed another determined blow at Mr. Terrace, a blow which appears to have completed the dreadful work. The actor, with a groan, staggered and reeled. When it was seen that Mr. Terrace had been stabbed, and his cries were heard, two commissionaires rushed up and seized the culprit. Richard was apprehended by nearby policemen, and he told the police, I did it for revenge. He had kept me out of employment for ten years, and I had either to die in the street or kill him. The murder became a sensation in the London press, and Prince appeared at the Old Bailey on the 13th of January, 1898. He initially pleaded guilty with provocation, but changed this on the advice of his counsellor, not guilty. Prince, aware of his notoriety, made the most of his attention. The defence attempted to prove insanity, with doctors and even his mother giving evidence that he was of unsound mind. The jury pronounced Prince guilty, but according to the medical evidence, not responsible for his actions. He was transferred from Holloway Prison to Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum and became involved in entertainment for the inmates and conducted the prison orchestra until his death from natural causes. Terrace's ghost is said to haunt the Adelphi Theatre and Covent Garden Tube Station. If you see somebody showing any of the signs of a stroke, you don't have to think about it, you just dial 999. Use the FAST test. F, face, has their face fallen on one side? Can they smile? A, arms, can they raise both arms and keep them there? 
S, speech. Is their speech slurred? T, time. Time to call 999 if you see any one of these signs. Act fast, make the call, dial 999. Back in the day facts. Here's some more general facts about London. For example, did you know that between 1348 and 1665, there were 16 outbreaks of the plague in London? The worst hit between 1348 to 49, and a third of Londoners inhabitants either died or fled. And because there were so many fatalities, mass graves had to be built around the city, and one of the most notorious plague pits was underneath Allgate Station, where more than 1,000 bodies are buried. And whilst we're talking about stations, during World War II, Bethnal Green Station was being used as an air raid shelter. And then one evening in 1943, as people ran for the shelter after hearing the sirens, a woman and child stumbled on the steps, causing hundreds of people to trip and fall down the stairs on top of each other. In the end, 173 people were crushed to death, including 62 children. Today, staff working late at the station say they can still hear the sound of children crying and screaming. The Tower of London is a very famous landmark, but did you know that 22 executions have taken place there? The last person was German spy Joseph Jacobs on the 15th of August 1941, after being caught parachuting into England. Another tourist attraction, but in the 18th century, was the Bedlam Asylum in Beckenham. Visitors would pay a penny to watch suffering inmates. Entries were free on Tuesday. In 2011, one of the skeletons at the original London Dungeons was discovered to be genuine human remains. The skeleton, nicknamed Kate, had been hanging in a gibbet cage in the Creepy Crypt and had been on display since the museum opened in 1975. Tests showed that the skeleton may have been wired together as late as the 1950s, but although no one knows where it originally came from, they suspect that it might date back to the early days of anatomical research, when bodies were regularly smuggled in from the Far East for dissection. And lastly, in the 1800s, the population of London more than doubled, and graveyards in the city became overcrowded. To deal with the problem, the government opened a railway system for the purpose of transporting dead bodies to Brookwood Cemetery in Surrey. The station was called London Necropolis Station in Waterloo. It was later moved to Westminster Bridge Road, where the second-class entrance to the station can still be seen today. I'm afraid that's it for this podcast special. I hope you enjoyed this, well, sort of early Christmas present. I'd like to thank Steve Shepherd for lending his voice to making this story come to life. And I'd also like to take a moment to thank all you listeners out there for helping make this podcast what it is today. Your support, your friendship and your loyalty is, it just means a lot to me. 
So thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>